And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. When the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. But they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Father, thank you for your word to us that is compelling, gripping, beautiful. It is spirit and it is life. May it pierce our minds and our hearts, dividing joints and marrow and showing us the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts, that we may follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Welcome, welcome. It's the fourth Sunday of Lent. Are you sick of Lent yet? Uh, a little bit sick of Lent, Jay. Got to be honest. Lent's hard. And that's why we have three groundbreaking passages that could each be a multi-week sermon series by themselves. The prodigal son. You've got Paul's talking about the imputation of righteousness to those who believe in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. And then you have the people of Israel They've just stepped into the promised land. What you didn't see in verses 1 through 8 is that this generation that had not been circumcised in the wilderness had just received circumcision, so they had to rest a while, and they were about to go into the land. So as I deliberated this week, I thought, what do I tell people? What do we focus on? What do we look at? And the thing that I want to invite us into is that by now you're sick of Lent, maybe, if you're, at least if you're a little bit honest. It's been hard. You've seen your weaknesses. You've seen those, the dark sides of yourself that you don't really like very much. That's good. That's what the wilderness is for. But remember that God does not leave us alone in the wilderness. But he calls us to himself. And he doesn't just call us to himself so that we can feel better, but he literally has instituted a new reality. Uh, what St. Paul says is there's a new creation. If you are in Christ, you're literally in this new creation. And so he's inaugurated that in Christ, and he's made each of us a part of that. And I want to look at some of the characteristics of that new creation. Now, in the wilderness, we may be asking ourselves a particular question. I want to put this question out there, <clears throat> excuse me, and hopefully I can answer it, or hopefully the scriptures will answer it for you, or the Lord will answer it. But the question is this, is God trustworthy? Or maybe asked a different way, is he good? Can we trust that this God who we can't see or touch, but we know a lot about, is, is this someone or something that we can actually give our lives to? Is it someone that we can actually, as we just saying, can we call this one Lord? Can we say that there is no one or no thing greater? Hopefully, the Lord will help us answer that tonight. Uh, we were not with you last week. Uh, we missed you dearly. We were in Atlanta, Georgia. I did a wedding on Saturday, but Amy and I, just, just the two of us, went a couple days early, and we did Atlanta. 
we rode the lime scooters, the scooters made of limes, I, I suppose. Just kidding. Uh, on the pathways, the belt line, the beltway, whatever it's called. We ate at all the restaurants. We bought all the things. I got some beard oil. I did so many hipster, gritty things. Why are you laughing? Do I not uh, elicit the most hipstery of... Uh, emotions from you. That was really wonderful. And we got to spend time with really great friends, Tripp and Rachel Prince. Tripp is the, the pastor and he's planting a parish of Trinity Anglican Church in Atlanta, Trinity Northside. So we were with them meeting on a Sunday night at Northside United Methodist Church, rented space, just like we do here. So just know that we're not the only crazy Anglicans meeting on Sunday nights. There are, all, there are crazy, dozens of us all over the country meeting on rented churches on Sunday nights. So I just, I come back with a spring in my step and joy in my heart. Um, but now let's look at this, this new reality, this new creation that God has instituted. And here's the first thing that we notice about the new reality is that it's not made in our own image. God doesn't tell the people of Israel, all right, free reign, go for it, make up the rules. But as we know by reading Joshua 4 and 5, that the, pe the children of Israel have just wandered for 40 years in the desert. They've crossed over the Jordan River on dry ground, mind you. So God split the waters, a lot like the Red Sea. They walk through into the promised land. And what does the Bible say about all the surrounding nations? Their hearts are melting within them. In my mind, though I'm not a trained or approved battle leader, in my mind, that's the time that you're going to go make conquest. That's the time you're going to attack Jericho and all the other cities is when everybody's afraid. But what did God say? The word of the Lord came to Joshua. And he said this, first of all, you need to circumcise this generation. And remember what circumcision is. It's the sign of the covenant that God gave Abraham. It's a sign that says, Abraham, I've chosen you and you and your descendants will be circumcised to say that you are all part of my covenant community. You are the people that I've chosen, that I've called to myself to be my peculiar people, that I will show to all the nations that this is my people and I am your God. And circumcision, St. Paul says in the New Testament, is a type or a foreshadowing of baptism. So the people of Israel don't go make conquest on Jericho and the rest of Canaan in their own identity, but they're reminded that their identity, yes, their very existence comes from the God who called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to this land. Abraham or Abram. Do you see the stars in the sky? Remember that a couple of weeks ago? And Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then in the next breath he said, but how am I to know, Lord, that I'll possess this land? And so God is sending the people of Israel into the promised land to take it for themselves, as he told them he would, whenever the uh, iniquity of the Amorites was complete. But not on their own identity, but on his identity. Not only that, but <clears throat> they also celebrate the feast of Passover. Do you remember when Passover was instituted? It was when the people of Israel were leaving Egypt, right? They had sat under the, the yoke and the bondage of slavery of Pharaoh, and it was this last plague. And the only way to, that the, the death angel would not come to your house and kill your force, firstborn is if you took that spotless lamb that had been living with you and you slaughtered it and you took the blood of the lamb and you, and you shed it over the doorposts of your house. 
And the death angel would pass over. And part of that Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When you eat this unleavened bread and you eat it in haste to remember, and this is a perpetual memory for the people of Israel, a perpetual reminder that God delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, not just from a place they didn't really like, but a place that they were enslaved, a place they had no power to leave on their own. They couldn't make this stuff up. So, on the 14th of Nisan, the 14th of this month, which is about this time of year in general. I don't know what day we're at right now in the Hebrew calendar, but it's pretty close. The, the children of Israel celebrated the Passover. And the Passover is a perfect type for Holy Communion, for the Eucharist. Because Jesus Christ is our Passover, we say every single week, who has been sacrificed for us. He is the lamb that is victorious yet slain as this little banner up here depicts. He was the covenant sacrifice, the victim, but also the covenant priest. He is the one whose blood shed for us protects us from separation and death. He is the one in whom we are a new creation. So people of Israel, you go into the promised land with God's identity the marker of God's covenant, wrought in God's faithfulness. In the face of their faithlessness, God's unwavering faithfulness is their mark. Not only that, but they're fed with this spiritual food, the same kind of spiritual food St. Paul talked about last week in 1 Corinthians 10 that Chris preached about so well. The spiritual food is that food that the Israelites could not provide for themselves. It's the same for you and for me. God gives us that which we cannot provide for ourselves. Do you hear that? It's not just a cute allegory. That is reality. It's the reality of the kingdom. Friends, I love this church. This church did not exist a few years ago. I could not have dreamed it up or made it up. Chris couldn't have snapped his fingers or had a very wise, witty, winsome thing to say. But God brought it to be. God can do what we could never imagine we could do. That's a little bit part of this new reality, this new creation that we are brought into. Now, we have this parable of the prodigal son. I hope you notice some of the context. Jesus is preaching, he's talking, and there are a lot of sinners. So tax collectors, people who were either, if they were Israelites, if they were Jews, they were traitors to their country, most of whom were Gentiles though. They were the middleman for the Roman Empire. But also sinners, prostitutes, people who engaged in loose, debauched living. And they were all drawing close to Jesus to hear what Jesus had to say. But who was standing at a distance? The scribes and the Pharisees. Now, my first rector, John Schuler, God bless him, would, I always just do this because this, this is like this kind of stuff that Pharisees wore. So if there's anybody that's like a Pharisee in appearance, it's guys that look like me or that do what I do because my job is to study this and to know all the rules in a way, but not to put it on as a burden. And not to reject Jesus like the Pharisees did. So I'm, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not secretly plotting to, uh, <laughs> to enlist Pharisaical rule. But I have to keep watch on myself. 
So the Pharisees are standing at a distance. Now you say, why are they standing so far back? Why don't they want to hear Jesus? Well, maybe it's because for a good Jew, for an, a law-abiding, observing Jew, you didn't want to get too close to those who walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of the scornful, Psalm 1 says. So maybe there's some obedience here. Jesus knows their hearts, and Jesus gives him, them three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. This, this parable is too big to get into, but I want to call to your attention a few things, and then I want to see where you see yourself in this parable. And again, we'll come back to this sort of new creation that we're living in. And we want to answer the question, is God trustworthy? Is he someone we can really call good and put our trust in? Now notice in the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son goes to his father and says, give me my inheritance. In that day, in that culture, that would have been the equivalent of saying, basically, I want you to be dead. Give me everything. I'm gone. I remember a New Testament scholar I used to listen to all the time, Father Francis Martin. He said in that culture, he lived in Israel for a while. He said, if, if you said that to your father in that culture, your father would, would beat you up. He would slap you. He would, he would put you away. But instead, this father gave of himself. The son takes it, and he engages in loose living in a foreign country. Now, that was bad. And so for these Pharisees and scribes hearing that, they may have been a little bit scandalized by that. Now, the prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, and whatnot, they may have identified with that. But what was even worse is what happened next, that the son ran out of, ran out of all the money, and he found himself working for a Gentile, very low for a Jew, not only working for a Gentile, but, but feeding the pigs and longing, craving for, desiring the pods that the pigs would eat. I mean, this is as good as dead. And finally, the son comes to his senses and he returns home. And we, you know the story. From a long way off, the father sees the son. And he runs to him and he embraces him. Now, the son had it in his mind that I know what I'll do. I've come to my senses. I'll return to my father. and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Make me as one of your hired servants. This isn't even as one of the household slaves. This is even lower than that. Somebody that can be dispensed with in a day. Make me one of those guys, Father. I beg of you. But what does the father do? Maybe in the opinion of the Pharisees and scribes listening on, the impetuous, reckless love of God, excuse me, love of the Father, we just sang that song, this love that the Father lavishes on the Son is completely senseless, isn't it? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up in our economy. It doesn't add up in our sort of created order. What we know, what we call real, how would we would react. And what the Father does is he puts a robe or a stole on him, puts the ring on him, signifying his full and complete sonship, and he slaughters the fattened calf. Make a note, that's a good band name. Slaughter the fattened calf. Now this might happen once a year to slaughter the fattened calf. Maybe on the Day of Atonement or something like that, scholars say. So this son takes everything that he was given and he squanders it in the worst imaginable way. 
And he comes back and he's celebrated like he's a war hero. It's awful. It's wrong, isn't it? Or is it? Then, the older brother hears the music, he hears the singing, he hears the feast, the festival. And he inquires, what is this? Oh, your, your brother, he's come home. We've slaughtered the fattened calf. Your father has. We're celebrating his return. And what's the older brother's response? Might be like my response or your response in the face of such reckless forgiveness. Hey, I've never left you. I've always done what you asked of me. I've kept an eye on things, but you've never done this for me. And the father replies to the older brother, you've been with me this whole time and everything that I have is yours. Where are we in the story, friends? You see, what marks this new creation, this new reality, and what Jesus, in, in one sense, was trying to get across to the scribes and the Pharisees is that I didn't come to call just the righteous who are in no need of repentance, but I came to call those who were sick, those who are dying, those who are broken, those who cannot and could not save themselves. That's what Jesus says. But Jesus also comes for the older brother. It's those who occupy the role of the older brother who would eventually shout a couple weeks later, at least for us in our liturgical calendar, crucify him. Crucify him. It's those who occupy the role of the older brother who would cast out the sinners and the tax collectors and those who want to draw near to Jesus and hear his word. But look at the response of the father and ask yourself the question again, is God trustworthy? You have to decide for yourself. Do I want to trust a God who recklessly loves those who have abandoned him yet come home? Do I want to put my trust and call good a God who gently reminds the older brother, everything that I have is yours. You've been with me this whole time. I know what my answer is because I'm the older brother. I'm the guy whose life is marked by envy, anger, jealousy. In this season of Lent, when I see my dark side, I don't like it one bit, but I paper over it and I cover over it. And I need to get right next to the younger brother and repent of my own self-righteousness, of my own self-rectitude that I have. Hmm. St. Paul has a beautiful phrase, I believe it's in Romans 8, that 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? There's a story of a baron in England uh, named Fitzgerald. And he was a very wealthy man, as barons often are. And he had one son. And his son left home. And while his son was away, he had died. And the pain of losing his son was so great that the baron never got over it. And in his wealth, as it, as it accumulated, he began to collect old masters, paintings. And his collection became well-renowned all across the region. And when the baron died, there was to be a great auction of all of his paintings. And collectors from, from all over were excited to get their hands on some of this action at this auction. And on the day of the auction, as it arrived, uh, the executor, the lawyer, got up to, to read the will. And he first read this. The first painting to be sold in this auction is of my beloved son. Now, this painting was by an unknown painter. It was of poor quality. And all of these art experts around just kind of passed over it each time. But there was one hired man who had worked in the house and who knew the son and out of sentimentality and because he loved the man and he loved his family, he thought, what the heck, you know, I'll bid on it. And so he gets this painting of my beloved son for a very low value. Then after that painting was sold, the lawyer got up and read the second clause from the will. And it said this, whoever buys my son gets everything. The auction is over. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He is the one that has brought us into his new creation. He is the one that invites us into loving relationship. And at the end of the day, friends, he is the one that invites us to trust him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we're not only to receive your love, but to be ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation. So we beg of you here at St. Bartholomew's that as we grow, as we behold you and become more and more like you, as we grow in your image and likeness, would you make us into a people who can be ministers of your reconciliation? People who can speak authentically and vulnerably of your goodness to us and to all the world. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.